Let me just, can I ask you to raise your hand? How many of you have heard a pastor preach a series on the book of Jude? One. That's exactly what we thought. When Blake and I were huddling up and thinking, what can we preach on before summer? We don't have, much, we don't have very long. Let's do one of the strangest books in the New Testament. No, no, no one ever studies because it's so strange. So that's how we got to Jude. But I want to show you today and throughout the course of the seven weeks that Jude is actually very relevant. If you're like me and you do a first-pass reading of Jude like we just did, maybe, maybe you leave with the question, how in the world does that apply to me? Contending over the body of Moses? Talking about Sodom and Gomorrah? talking about these love feasts. I mean, you might hear these words and think, this has nothing to do with me. But we'll look at what Jude says in verse 3. And please, you know, kind of have your thumb there on page 9 so you can look at verses 1 through 4. Jude tells them that he wanted to write about the common salvation that they had. And if he were to do that, it would probably look like the letter to the Ephesians. A very common, wonderful, happy, warm book. But he says he felt it necessary to write to them to appeal that they contend for the faith. He did a little switcheroo. I wanted to write something happy about our common salvation, but what I found out was what was going on among you, and I felt like I have to write to you to enable you and to help you to contend for your faith because you got a big problem in your church. These people were coming into the church, don't really know if they were teachers, but they were definitely influencers who were doing the church thing, but practicing as well brazen outward immorality. And so that's why Jude says, Brothers and sisters, you need, actually he says, beloved, you need to contend for the faith. And that's, that's the purpose of the whole letter. If you get our weekly emails on Wednesday, you'd have seen the little graphic about Jude, and it was two boxers, old-timey boxers in the ring, and it's Jude, contend for the faith. Now, what does he mean by that? And why is this sermon series called Contend for the Faith? How many of you have heard of the person Hannibal? Not Hannibal Lecter. That would be a really depressing sermon illustration, yes? Hannibal. Hannibal was a general from Carthage, so think in the Mediterranean Sea in that area, in the late 200s BC. And even still to this day, the way that he fought battles is studied in military colleges. He was considered likely the greatest general of that entire century. And he lived in a time where there was great tension between those in Carthage, the Carthaginians, and the Greeks and the Romans. The Greek empire was coming to an end. The Roman empire was rising, and Carthage was trying to take as much as possible. And you all may have heard in school one of his famous achievements. Hannibal, in order to attack Rome at the outbreak of the Second Punic War, he marched an army, which included war elephants, 
over Iberia and over the Pyrenees and even over the Alps into Italy. Some of you have visited that region of the world. I don't know how you get elephants over the Alps, but he did, and he conquered. And so Hannibal had already won 15 decisive battles against greater prepared and greater numbered Roman armies in Rome when he came upon the city of Tarentum. Now, Tarentum was a harbor city that would have been of great importance for him if he could take it, because then he could get supplies and troops from Carthage. Well, he began to battle at Tarentum, and he actually at one point did control the city, but the harbor stayed under Roman rule. And finally, he attempted the siege of the harbor at Tarentum, and the Romans, led by, by a general name of Quintus Fabius, Fabius not only managed to hold the harbor, but turned Hannibal's offensive into a defensive, and the Romans took back the entire city. Now, the Greek historian Plutarch, who wrote, who wrote about this about 10 years after Jude was written, here is what he wrote. He said that Hannibal, Hannibal said, it appears then that the Romans have their own Hannibal, for we have lost Tarentum completely, even as we sit and look at it. And for their success, Fabius, the Roman general, was contending with Hannibal like a clever athlete and easily baffling all his undertakings. So the historian Plutarch, writing about 10 years after the book of Jude, uses a word that was actually invented by Jude in this letter that we read today. So what is this word that Jude invented? And it's in chapter 3. The word here where he says contend for the faith, Jude invented that. It is epagonizomai in Greek. It has a, it's called, because it's a new word, by the way, when you make a new word, you know what, you, what that is? It's called a neologism. So if you make up a new word, like ostriched, I ostriched across the floor, it's a neologism. And here, for those of you who are just really curious about Greek grammar, it only appears once in Scripture. So that means it's also a hopox legomenon. Now, do you feel like you've been to college a little bit this morning? Or do I need to continue? No. So that's it. That's enough of your 10-cent words. The root of this word, uh, epagonizomai, is the Greek word agonizomai. Does that sound like anything in English? Agony. But agony, a lot of times we think we're in pain and agony. A long time ago, it just meant like to strive or to fight or to really get in there and don't stop. So Jude, writing to his brothers and sisters, makes a new word. It says, don't just strive and fight. Super strive. Super fight. You have got to get in there to contend for the faith. So that's the occasion of the writing. These people were in a really bad spot, and Jude is telling them to come at the problem with guns out. Now, what about Jude? Here, he's identified as Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. If you have a Bible, you can look in Mark 6, verse 3, and we see that Jude, or Judas, 
is also the brother of James, who they both are, the half-brothers of Jesus. Now, at this time, James wrote a letter, and he didn't identify himself as the brother of Jesus. Jude's writing a letter. He doesn't identify himself as the brother of Jesus because they found that to be too, like, too offensive to Jesus. Jude could have said, hey, this is Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, but that would take Jesus down, and he didn't want to take Jesus down. He just wanted to say, hey, I'm a slave, doulos, I'm a slave of Jesus, but I'm the brother of James, and James was a famous apostle in Jerusalem. So he wrote it. Now, that's enough about Jude. Do you understand the context in the book and where we're going with this? Okay, so getting into the text today, we're looking at verses 1 through 4, and we see Jude contending Epagonizomai, Jude contending in three ways. The first, contending in the gospel. The second, contending for the faith. And then the third, contending against the perversion of grace. So let's, let's start by looking at Jude contending in the gospel. If we are to do the command that Jude gives us in verse 3, if we are to contend for the faith, which is the main point of this letter, We've got to do so out of gospel strength. And Jude lets us in on that in verse 1. Take a look at verse 1 for me. Look at to whom the, the letter is addressed. To those who are called, beloved, of, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. That's a very brief, maybe incomplete, but very brief, gospel summary. He says, I'm writing this letter to those who are called. That is, God has marked you out for salvation. And he's writing to those beloved in God the Father. That is, you are adopted sons and daughters of the living God. You are in his family. He's never going to kick you out. No No matter how much you kick and scream, once you're in the family, you're always in the family. He loves you in the same manner that he loves Jesus himself. For parents who have adopted kids, you do not love your adopted kids less than their natural-born kid. Jesus was the only begotten of God, the Father, but the Father has millions and millions of adopted kids. And be sure that he loves you no less than he loves Jesus himself. And there be reminded of this here. And the last thing that it said here, and these and those who are kept for Jesus Christ, we are kept for a Savior who will not and cannot let us go. That his salvation is for now and tomorrow, into the day you die, into the millionth year into eternity. Jude is reminding them that if they are going to contend for the faith, they have to know these things about the gospel and live out these things. This isn't just head knowledge. If these things aren't affecting your heart on a day-to-day basis, then you're putting yourself in a position that might be dangerous. It just might be dangerous. So maybe it should be, instead of contending in the gospel, it should be contending out of gospel strength. You ever had those weeks Can I be honest? I'm a pastor. I've been a pastor for 11 years now. And um, there's just those weeks that I just don't pray. 
And there are those weeks that <laughs> I've opened the Bible zero times. You know, pa- pastors aren't perfect people. Actually, pastors are pretty bad people. I know you have weeks and in, in, I know you have weeks like that. Some of you have months like that. Some of us have even had years like that, right? It's hard. It's hard to do what he's doing here if we're not reminding ourselves of the gospel every day, right? And let me tell you what. And I realize this is being recorded, but I don't mind saying it. I think it's much more useful for you to remind yourself of the gospel than to read some random passage in 2 Kings. Um, you can learn about Jehoshaphat, and that's great. But we need, we need real food and real drink. We need to remind ourselves of the gospel every day. Before we discipline our kids, before we take them to baseball, before we take them to swimming, before we drop them off at school. We need to remember who we are, that we are beloved in God the Father, that we have been called irrevocably, and we are going to be kept as messy as I am when I look in the mirror, as messy as you are when you look in the mirror. Jesus is going to keep that person through eternity. If we're not in that position, it puts us at danger of not being able to contend for the faith. We can be very Christian. Our lives can look very good on the outside. You don't have to have any obvious struggles. But unless the gospel's getting in, the gospel ain't coming out, you know? So we're contending in the gospel. And secondly, we're contending for the faith. Verse 3, I love it when the New Testament authors tell us exactly what they want us to get. Sometimes it's difficult. Jude here says, I want you to contend for the faith. Although I was very eager, verse 3, to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. This, I imagine, wouldn't be a letter that, that the receivers would like to read. Could you imagine waking up one morning, um, the wife is up before, your wife is up beforehand, and you get downstairs, and she's already left for work because she has an earlier job, and she wrote you a note. And the note says, oh, my dearest husband, whom I've been with 24 years, who has given me 38 children, who, who does such wonderful things. I found it I found it necessary. I really wanted to write to you a wonderful love letter, but instead I found it necessary to remind you to unload the dishwasher. That's the type of letter that we have here. The people that are reading this go, all right, common salvation. Oh, we've really failed. And that's a problem. What is the faith? What is the faith in verse 3 that he wants them to contend for? If you have a Bible, you can turn to Philippians 1.27. If not, you can just listen to me. I want to, I want to read verse 127 from the Apostle Paul, where he uses this phrase, but with a little extra words. He says, Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you 
that you are standing firm in one spirit and with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. If you search this term for the faith, it appears a handful of times in the New Testament. And here, the Apostle Paul modifies it. He doesn't just say, of the faith. He says, of the faith of the gospel. So maybe we've got a little more raw data here to understand what it means when Jude says, for the faith. And it's not faith in the gospel. He's not saying, I'm striving. I want you to contend for faith in the gospel. Because that doesn't seem to address the actual situation of what's going on in the church to whom Jude is writing. And it's definitely not the faith that comes about through the preaching of the gospel. You know, you preach, people respond in faith to the gospel. Because that is circumstantial. Both of those are circumstantial, right? Either a person's faith in the gospel or people being come, coming to faith because of the gospel. What Jude seems to be alluding to is something much more serious than this not having to do with response to the gospel. So when Jude says the faith, or Paul says the faith of the gospel, what they mean is the faith that is the gospel. The faith that is the gospel. When you and I, when we talk about the faith, and this has been been the case in most English you know, Scottish theologians, when they use the term the faith, they mean the faith that is the gospel. And you can look at just about every instance in the New Testament where that word, where that phrase is used, and it definitely seems to mean, I want you to contend for the faith that is the gospel. And that's why this is so darn serious. So he wants them to contend for it. Why? Imagine yourself getting this and going, okay, I've been a faithful member of the church, and Judah's writing to contend for the faith. Why, why should I do that? Just as a reminder, the gospel, Romans 1, 16, the gospel is the very power of God for salvation. The gospel is the very power of God for salvation. So the only way that you get to go to heaven The only way that you get your sins forgiven, the only way that you are justified in Christ or that you're adopted into God's family or that you're given the Holy Spirit, the only way that you spend eternity with the most perfect being that has ever or will exist is through the gospel. That's it. There is one way, namely, that you and I are more broken and sinful than we could ever imagine. Yet at the same time, in Christ Jesus, we are more loved and accepted than we could dare dream. Or that the triune God offers salvation to sinners. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The gospel is a very simple thing. It's a very simple construction, but if you believe it, it changes you. And he wants, Jude wants, these people to contend for the faith that is the gospel. Now, what are some things, what are some things that that might mean for us? 
First is, our faith is not an evolving one. It's not an evolving one. You run across a church who believes something that's very different than the Apostles' Creed that we just read, they're not contending for the faith. Um, it also means, how about this? You and I live in a very technological time. I remember, I remember rotary telephones and phone booths. I remember when I ran out of gas or my tire blew on my very first car, a 1981 GMC Sierra Classic two-tone brown pickup. You know what? If I had problems, I couldn't call a friend to come help. I walked. So you walk down the street, right? And now, I remember the iPhone being invented, and now you've got iPhones and Androids and all this stuff. You can tell, you know, in some cases, you can tell Alexa to do something, and it does it. Like Alexa, start the washer, and she does it. Or she, you know, she's kind of pushy, and she makes the, the washer start. Or you can do all this just strange, crazy technological stuff. You know what's interesting about Christianity? There are no new innovations in Christianity. There's no new innovations here. This is like, this is, this is like using an abacus instead of a calculator. How many of you know what an abacus is? It's a counting thing. Very good. I knew the engineer, look, I knew the engineers got it because all the engineers perked up and then half of us were going, huh? So anyways, look, there's no innovations in Christianity. And you and I, as this church grows, okay, one church plant out, another church plants out. It looks very likely that we will have a building before we send another church plant. You and I have to figure out what's worth fighting for in the church. I mean, each church, to use Pastor Blake's sermon, or, uh, illustration, he goes, you know, every church has a theological ancestry.com, right? That there's, within the church, there's been arguments about this or arguments about this. Some of them are silly. Some of them, you know, attain, uh, apply to a building. What color should the carpet in the sanctuary be? We haven't had that. That's great. But we have had other arguments and different things. But here's the thing. We want to make sure that if we're going to put our foot down and super contend, like Jude says, it better be about something that's as essential as the gospel. Right? We have to very as a denomination, as a church who is confessional. So we get a really long confession that all the pastors and elders and deacons have to agree with. And it includes lots of stuff. But we have to be careful to keep first things first and second things second. And we have to have ears to hear Jude. Jude is telling them to contend not for minor things. He's telling them to super fight for the main things. Super fight for the main things. And really, going back to the gospel, like if we're doing that in and out of the gospel, you know what that means? Great health. So let me ask you guys, what's the best way to keep weeds out of your yard? What's the best way? Some of you are thinking chemicals, right? Or some of you are thinking um, like goats, because goats eat everything. Really, the best way to keep weeds out of a yard 
is to have super, super healthy grass, right? It is really hard for a dandelion to grow on a golf green. That's something you almost never see because the grass is so healthy. We want to be a church in which the grass is so healthy that these sorts of things can't pop up, okay? So we were contending for the faith. Why must we? Look at verse 4, because the grace of Jesus gets perverted apparently pretty easily. We are contending for the faith against the perversion of grace. Verse 4 says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who were long ago designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and, and I'll say, and thereby deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So, Jude is writing against certain people. Well, I can guarantee you those people aren't at Trinity because they've been in the grave for like, for like 2,000 years. So, how does this apply to us? It's important to see the error that they were peddling so you and I can be on guard for this error. You see this sort of thing all the time, even in the 21st century. The word pervert here, metatithemi, it's actually used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament mainly for one thing. You know what that is? I'll read it from Hosea 5. The princes of Judah have become like those who move the landmark. Back in the, back in the Old Testament, unlike nowadays, they knew property lines by landmarks, right? Nowadays, engineer, there's an iron rod in the ground or a brass cap somewhere so that you come in and survey the land. They can find that, set up the survey equipment and everything like that. This word back, in, back then, pervert, was mean for someone who took that landmark and made his land a lot bigger and made his neighbor's land a lot smaller. It means you're infringing upon them. You're perverting. You're, you're taking it and skewing the grace of Jesus. Now, what does that look like here? Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. It's very likely that these were Gentile believers who came in to the church and they said, okay, we believe in this Jesus we understand what it's talked about, but then also maintained many of their immoral practices on the side. At the time, Gentiles in temple worship had what's known as love feasts. They were very debaucherous, and I'm just going to say that. It's very possible that they said, we're coming to the Lord's Supper, we're going to have that, and we're going to have a love feast too, and they bring that in. They're corrected. And then they continue to add former elements of the things that they once participated in in Christian worship. That sounds very strange to us, but that's exactly what happened. And they're saying what Jude says is not that this is wrong, but that you're moving the landmark on Jesus' grace. Why would they move the landmark on Jesus' grace? It's really, it really doesn't have anything to do with a theological reason. 
They weren't like, they weren't like the Jews and even the Gentiles that had interacted with, with the Jews in Jerusalem to say, are, should we follow Jewish practices still or should we not? They're just coming in and simply saying, I like this stuff and I'm going to keep doing it. They're perverting, they're moving the landmark on Jesus' grace because Jesus' grace does a couple things. It absolutely frees you, and it absolutely binds you. It's a bit of a paradox. It frees you. Brothers and sisters, you are free to sin. I mean, that sin's been taken care of on the cross by Jesus. And it's a good thing that we're free to sin because we sin accidentally or through omission all the time, right? But that grace is a constraining grace. Like, if you really knew the gospel, and the Apostle Paul talks about this a lot, look, if you really knew the gospel, if you really knew who you were, you would live out of that. You know, there's, I think I've mentioned it before, but one of the ways of disciplining my son, who is taking karate, and you know what happens to six-year-old boys when they take karate? They want to kick and hit everything. That's true. Inanimate objects, vegetables, it doesn't matter. And so, sometimes there's been an occasion for him to hit and kick his sister. And my response to that is a familiar response, most of the time. Sometimes it's just, stop hitting and kicking your sister. The most effective is, son, should you hit and kick your sister? No. Why not? Because Mitchell men don't hit and kick girls, right? I'm trying to get him to remember, like, the family gospel. Should you, Trinity, participate in the love feasts that these people were participating in? No. Why? Because I belong to my Father in heaven. That's not who I am now. And these people were denying that. They were saying, no, we can belong to the Father in heaven and do whatever the heck that we want to anyways. So, we are contending for the faith against perversion of grace because, brothers and sisters, you and I know, we know, we can be so prone to that. One of the great things about Trinity is that on all the mugs and in the bulletin and everything else, it says grace changes everything. And it might lead you to believe you can come in here and follow Jesus and still do whatever you want. But that's not the way the Christian life works. Jesus is wooing us to himself. Yes, there's room for mistake. There's room for failure, all of that. But we want to try to align our hearts to what, what Jesus' grace really looks like. So those are those, are those three things. And I want to I bring it home. But talking about Jesus... How do we contend for the faith? Well, it's hard. Our ears have to be up. By the way, we have to know the gospel well. You know, there's books out there on all types of cults and what they believe, and their Wikipedia pages are just fascinating. You know, the best way to know if you're stepping into a cult is if you know the gospel backwards and forwards. If you know Scripture backwards and forwards, then you can tell, oh, yeah, like they deny this, or they deny that, or they deny that. Well, we can contend, but Jesus was the great contender. I mean, he left his place 
at the Father's right hand to become born a baby, to be forever united with humanity. And now he's got to cry and skin his knee and grow up and learn. He has to live a perfect life. He contends against the devil in the wilderness for 40 days of fasting. He didn't do that for himself. He did that for you to fulfill all righteousness. He went to the cross willingly to contend against death itself and sin itself for you. He went to the grave to contend against the curse for you, and he overcame it. And now he was contending for you at the right hand of the Father, Romans 8, that he always intercedes for us. Jesus never now sleeps. He is contending for you always at the Father's right hand. And looking back to how we started with the Carthaginians, these people kind of around the rim, North Africa and South, or South Europe, they were able to demolish the Romans and the Greeks for a decade and a half, despite having much fewer soldiers, despite having much poorer weaponry, because they had one great general. What do you think about our general, the one who's in command? You know, it's like the, the newer song says, if our God is for us, then who could ever stop us? That's the reason that we can contend. And even in the last song that we're going to sing, we're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who this may be, Christ Jesus, it is he, the Lord of hosts, his name, from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in that, while we are called to contending by Jude and really that through your Holy Spirit, we thank you that we have one who contends for us, that we will not fail because we have been called, we have been beloved by the Father, and that Jesus will keep us until the end. And we thank you that for that, if left up to our own devices, we would one by one wander into the wilderness, never return. Thank you for keeping us in the faith. And I ask as we continue to worship that our eyes would be turned to how you have contended for us in Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.